So let's talk about the topic that we are going to look at today in a little bit detail, or let's at least frame it. So when you think about change in an organization, or certainly at, a, at an organizational level, you often think about those big change efforts that take place where there's a steering committee, a project group, a project leader, there's these town halls, lots of PR because you know it's, it's not just enough to change, it's important to be seen to change as well. And so that kind of change definitely takes place at an organizational level and we're going to call that for the purposes of today macro level change. The, the second scenario we're often uh, faced with is at an individual level or small team level. And that's very different. That's where maybe you've got an individual on the team who you you see the need for them to change in some way or another, but it's just not it's just not happening. Um, or it could be at a small team level. For example, you could have a scenario where a team has been reliant in the past on mostly inbound leads, now has to develop outbound leads, and despite all your efforts. It's just not happening, they're not changing, they're certainly not changing fast enough. So it's in that latter group that we're going to focus our uh, attention today. We're going to, let's call that micro change, where it's at an individual or a small group level. And so we're, we're concerned about that group. That said, even in a large organization, changes is all about the people and their behavior, and, and that's the topic. But the examples and what we're going to look at are going to be at that micro level mostly. But a lot of them do carry over. What they do have in common, that macro and that micro level, is that they all involve people and problems. And in fact, the problem, so when I say problems, the problem the organization faces or the team faces or the individual faces. Of course, your problem is a little bit different. Your problem is the people's response to that external problem. They're not aware of it, or if they're aware of it, they don't see it as a big deal. Even if you, you're blue in the face, tell them how important it is, there's maybe a sense of, you know, what can I do about it? And there's a, there's a paralysis there. And so what we're gonna do over the, the, the remainder of our hour together is, we're going to look at, and we're going to go under the skin a little bit on this one, and that's why I said we may have, uh, hopefully, have some comments and questions about it, because to understand the problem that you face, we face in, in changing behaviors in organizations, it's really, really important to understand the, how that's structured, what, what's really happening at a psychological level. Um, when you understand that, it's a lot easier, first of all, to understand what's happening or what's not happening, but more importantly, what you can do about it. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the, the way we as humans respond to problems. And what you'll see with that is it's not a binary. We think it's a binary thing. Here's the problem. Face it. Do something about it. But what you'll see is that there's a process and it's really, really vital that you understand the process. And then what we'll do is we'll look at a few methods and tools that you can use to help people move through that process. And then we'll look at, at the, the, the third aspect of today. What we'll do is we'll look at some of the kind of blockers, the things that can get in the way, and again, what you might be able to do about it. So that's pretty much the agenda, those three steps that we're going to do. 
So as I said, step one was going to be understanding how we respond, particularly to new problems. I'm not talking about problems that we face day in and day out that we solve in an, in an automatic way. We don't have to think about it, how we find our train in the morning or a bus or something that we can do on, on, on autopilot. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when something's challenged, something new. There's a new strategy, for example. How do we respond to that? And what you're going to see is that we go through four phases. The process is called, in psychology, it's called discounting. So it's not the same as the discounting that you would, you, you think about in a sales context when we're talking about price. We're really talking about, what we mean about discounting is how we play down, dismiss, almost ignore in, in our own mind, often at a subconscious level. And there's four, four levels of that. And, and it's interesting to, what I'd like you to do as, as I go through these levels with you is I'd like you to think about somebody in your organization, somebody who is reluctant to change. You, you've tried your best. It's just not happening for whatever reason. And again, I just want to emphasize how important it is that it's, this is quite a complex area and I'm not giving you the answers to individuals within your team. What we want to do with this is look at the process that and where they are and, and what steps you might be able to take to address that. So we're going to look now at those four levels. So when faced with a problem that we have to solve or address in the real world, the first level we, we discount the problem is its existence. It's, it's a form of denial. We don't even see it. We're not paying attention and it's not on our radar screen. Other people might see it, but we don't. That's the first level. So it's kind of like nothing to see here, folks. Second level then is assuming that we're aware of the existence of the problem is what we'll do is we'll discount, dismiss, play down the significance of it. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it's not a big deal a type of approach to it, shoulder shrugging almost. And the, this is the third level then is once we recognize that it's, oh, it's significant, need to take this seriously, the next level that we face is the changeability. Can it, what are the change possibilities? And, and that's definitely where a lot of the shoulder shrugging can take place. It's like, you know, what, what can we do about this? It's, 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 it's always been like this. That's just the way it is. And, and, and so when you hear those, those statements coming back or you observe it, what it tells you is that's where the discount is happening in the mind of the person you're observing. And the fourth level is the personal abilities that we have to affect change. In other words, do we have the resources, the skills, the experience? We tend to discount that. We, we, we tend to um, minimize our own abilities and, and the resources and supports that we have available to go and address this problem. It's perfectly natural, sometimes infuriating when you see it, but if we understand it, it's a lot easier then to address it at, at the individual level. So, so that's the first thing I want to talk about. Now, as I go through this, and, and I appreciate I am oversimplifying a lot of this, is you're going to get confused in, in a few moments because the danger is when you, when you start processing this is that we start to think through examples in our own lives could be work or it could be personal lives as well we all know people who who have problems in their lives and they're just ignoring them or they, they don't see them as a big deal you do but they don't 
and the temptation is to, to start to process this and you kind of go, oh yeah, now I get it. And, and that's important, but it's easy to get lost in that as well as, as I go through this. And so stick with it. Again, the goal here is not to understand everything. I'll give you the takeaways, resources that you can go away. In fact, actually there's a, let me see, where did I put it? Here we go. Uh, there's some great books on this topic if you really want. That's one of my favorite books, TA Today, and that talks about discounting in, in, and what's going on at a more detailed level. However, so that's the first thing, four levels. The next thing you need to know about it is there's three areas that we will apply discounting to. There's ourselves, others, and the situation. So, so they're the, the three types of selves, the others, and, and the situation. So we'll discount our own abilities or we'll maybe discount others that they have the resources. That's often you'll find in organizations where managers think they're the only ones who can do this. And then what happens is they delegate it to somebody and they're amazed to see somebody else does it better. In essence, what they've been doing is they're discounting others and the abilities and the resources that others deploy to solve these problems classical problem and then there's the situation look it's the environment you can't do anything and all right and so so now we have the levels we have the areas and and the types this is where you're going to get confused but I have a little graphic in a moment that I'll share with you that hopefully will will will, will help you kind of process this uh, easier so the three types where we discount we discount the stimuli in other words what how the problem manifests itself um, we, we'll discount that, we'll ignore. It's like where you ignore the, the rattle in the engine of the car, for example. Um, or, or, or you're looking at your watch and, and, and you ignore the fact that it's a minute past the time you should have left the house at, right? And, and so there's, the world is telling you, but you, you tend to ignore it. That's the stimuli. The second part then is, or the second type is the problem itself. You will discount that and then the third one is the options. Now let's put that into a matrix, which will explain this a little bit better for you. And I'm gonna blow this up so you can see it full screen. So we said there's four levels, the existence, the significance, the change possibilities, or personal ability. And you can see that down on the left-hand side. So here's for example, we may be discounting the existence of the stimuli. We're in total denial, we don't see it, we're not paying any attention. Maybe then what we do is we see the stimuli the, the, the surface level, but we discount, we, 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 we discount the existence that it might be a problem. It's, it's right, it's, it's, we're total denial about the fact that this is a problem. Or even if we recognize that it's a problem, the third level there, if you go to T3, we're discounting the options we have available to address that problem. Then as I said, the next bit is, we're now no longer discounting the existence. We see that, but now we're discounting the significance of the stimuli. In other words, that rattle in the car really is something that, you know, maybe it's my engine could seize up. That's the, the stimuli. And then the next is we maybe discount the significance of the problem itself or discount the significance of the options available to us and so on. I really don't want to get too bogged down in, in all of these. I think when you step it through one by one, it'll make a lot more sense. Here's the key takeaway on all of this, and this is what I want us to focus on. Uh, the first bit we mentioned at the beginning, which is that this is a process, right? So it's not a binary in that when we see a problem, we just expect people to go and do something about it. And 
in fact, what we've got to do, if we have an understanding that there's, there's, there's a level of resi natural resistance, uh, in other words, uh, before even resistance, there's a sense of uh, denial, then resistance, and then we go to explore options before we accept and move on with it. So that's the first thing I want you to take away, is that it's a process, and the process can, it can be very, very rapid, depending on the significance of the problem facing us, the situation we're in, prior experience. And this is where we get into lots of nuances and we get into the it depends type answers. But it can be very rapid. It can take a long time, many, many months. It may never happen at all. People may never face up to the problems that they're facing. And if it's a, that's in a work context, you have to take decisions based on that. So that's the first thing I want you to think about. So there's the, I'm going to put them up there for the existence of the change possibilities. And I said, there is a process to it. So the first step is if people are discounting the existence is we have to bring awareness or aware, they have to be aware of the problem before they can even begin to address it. The second stage then is they have to acknowledge the impact of the problem. Third is they have to see that they have options and discuss those openly with you and understand what resources and supports are available to them. Now, if you think about it, really what's happening there is a coaching conversation with a, a rep, for example, where they, they, they're sharing with you, or first of all, you're trying to establish are they even aware of this in the first place, assuming that they are. Well, do they see it as significant? How is it impacting them? How is it impacting others? How is it impacting their role, the job, their customer, the client, internally, and so on? Again, the, the, the beauty you have as a coach is that you see these impacts, you get them, but if you try to tell them, this is where we're gonna to get to in, in a moment, is why you may be frustrated with all of this. Why when you tell them it just doesn't work. But the first thing I want you to think about is that it's, it's a process. Second thing that to bear in mind is that it's a, if we're discounting, let me go back up to this, this graph here that I had. And again, I'm gonna blow this up full screen so you can see it, because it's a bit of an eye test. Is that, let's say somebody is discounting the significance of a problem. So there are T3 on this screen. Well, guess what? They're also discounting every other box after the T4, T4, 5, T6, all the way through to T9. They're discounting all of it, which is why when you offer a suggestion or a solution, why that gets discounted as well. Because if you think about it, if I don't see that as a problem, why would I look at options? Or if I don't see it as significant, why would I look at resources that might help me? I automatically am discounting and so and I want to get, there's a bonus point on this I want to get to in a moment, which is important. So we said, one, it's a process. Two is that they, they're always discounting upstream of where they are in that process, or we, it's a very human thing. And then the other thing I want to talk about is this concept of with every discount comes what the psychologist form is grandiosity. Basically, it's, a, it's almost like an arrogance. So you could imagine where, and maybe this was you when you were younger, or if you've got teenage kids who are driving, for example, you might see where you know as an experienced driver, well, that could be dangerous, particularly if you have a son or a daughter and they're going out on a trip and you know, you know there's, there's dangers out there. 
but they don't see it. They're, yeah, 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 we don't know. And, and here's the thing, is, so they're discounting the danger of what's out there. But the grandiosity comes in is, they're also bigging up, at some level, their own ability to, uh, to do, no, they, they all think they're better than the average drivers, for example. And so, it's like, yeah, 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 Dad, you don't understand. Yeah, you only did six driving lessons. We have to do, you know, we, we're, we're better. We, we know better, and you see this. This is not just an intergenerational thing. You see this in companies. Companies always think they're better than their competitors, and they know best. Or when they go into prospects, because they deal with this on a, on a regular basis, they're discounting the situation, and with that, and that's, that's the danger. It's that, it's not even the discount that, that's so much the problem. It's the, the counterbalancing uh, I'm going to call it arrogance that can come with it. The, the, the psychologists are a little bit nicer. They call it grandiosity. Um, and so you, you've got to bear that in mind as well. So we said it's a process. There's a, a, a grandiosity that comes with the discounts and we're always discounting downstream of wherever we are. So that gives us some really great tools to understand where people are and where we need to get them to in that process. I'm going to look at a few tools now in a moment to do that, but the bonus point on this is, if you think about this, what we're talking about here, this, how we deal with problems, and you think that every organization you sell to, it's no different. They've got a problem they're trying to solve, some sort of a business problem, and they go through the exact same. We said, you know, organizations are just entities structured around people and that organizations can suffer from grandiosity and arrogance, we all know this. And also, if you go into an organization, yeah, look, we're happy with what we have. Did you ever hear that one? Right, that's just the discount. Or when they, they see it, but it's, it's, it's a nice to have, not a, a, a must have, and, but you've seen with other organizations how transformative your solutions can be, but they're kind of meh about it. That's again, they're discounting. Or where they're looking for uh, references and uh, yeah, pretty much, you know, who else has done this? They're looking for examples and case studies. It's a form of discounting is, is there a solution out there? Because all organizations in their own arrogance see that they're, they, they feel that every problem they're faced is unique to them. And even though others have a flavor of it, nobody experiences it like them. And you're going, yeah, they're all the same, but they don't see it because they're discounting that. And again, if we come in with solutions to that, even the, even the suggestion that you have a solution to a problem that they're uh, facing will be discounted. Because remember, if they don't see it as significant, they're discounting everything that comes after that. If they don't see that there's viable solutions out there, in other words, change possibilities as the language uh, in discounting is, then your solutions, your suggestions, your advice, it's gonna be discounted. We experience that as stalls, objections. We don't, we don't think of it in, 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 in the psychology language, but that's exactly what's happening. So it's interesting when you take this concept and apply it. I mean, for the purpose of this webinar, we were looking at it internally with individuals in our team that we're trying to understand and, and support and coach to be better, be different. But it's also interesting from a sales point of view, uh, how it applies as well, and why we run into a lot of the problems that we do. I just think that's interesting. All right, so let's look a little bit at some of the things that we can do about it.
So, oh, I, there's something I wanted to do before I do there. This is creating buy-in. Uh, you will get significant improvement on your results with this if you frame it and uh, set the right tone, if you, if you prime it for success. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, there is a, 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 a thing in, in, where did I put that? Oh, there we go, the book, the, the TA Today, and it's called Discounting for Change. Now, for Sandler fans who are listening to this, you will know this as upfront contracts. It's exactly the same thing. In fact, it's what upfront contracts are based upon, which is this idea of how do we get commitment? In fact, I have a, a definition here of what contracting is. This is the psychology definition. An explicit bilateral commitment to a well-defined course of action. Um, and here's the goal of contracting, which is, in other words, contracting with somebody we want to have that, we want to induct or enroll into a change process with is a bilateral commitment to a course of action. And if you think about the upfront contract, that's exactly that. If you think about it, the purpose of this conversation is how much time you allocated, what the goal is, what the outcome is, we're focused on that. And we're lowering any defensiveness by focusing on the no. Now, this webinar is not a talk about upfront contracts. That's, that's a completely different one. But those of you who have done it with me know exactly what I'm talking about here. And the purpose uh, on your screen right now of the contract amazing is to shift the focus attention away from the problem and center it instead on the goal of change. And that is a quote directly taken from the book on, on, on contracting and discounting. It's all in that book on TA Today. Uh, if anybody wants, I'm happy to send them on the details of that book where you can read more about this. And you do have to read it and absorb it and think about it. It takes several passes to really, really, really internalize it. But it's worth it because it gives you that understanding of the task at hand and where you need to take it. And so framing the conversation and getting that, by, that, that, that commitment to a mutual goal bypasses the, the trap of falling into what's the problem in here and why is it happening? We need to jump over that initially and you'll have a lot more success with this when you can do that. So I want to talk now a little bit about some of the methods that you can use to take people on that journey. And there are several, I don't have time for all of them, but I'm going to pick on some of the, the, the more accessible ones and powerful ones, potent ones that are available to you. First one is storytelling. And I thought I'd share an example with you on this. Um, a few years ago, I was doing a class with an organization. And uh, the, uh, at the time, I was writing a Harry Davidson. And, and I, had, I had this belief, right, uh, doing this class. Yeah, and we're in this hotel, it's lunchtime. We're all sat around the table. I'm sitting there and participants, salespeople who are joining this company around the table. And for whatever reason, we got talking about bikes. And one chap at the table, a German chap, talked about a summer job he had working shotgun on this, like a pickup truck. I can't think of the, but basically this was a recovery truck where if there's a road traffic accident, they go out, pick up the debris, take it away to a scrapyard, blah, blah, blah. And I remember him saying to the group that the type of accident he hated, hated being called out to were motorbike accidents. 
specifically motorbike accidents where people had not been wearing protective clothing. And he said, what he, he, he still, still could hear the screams. And he said, what would happen, he said, is that somebody would come off their motorbike along the motorway and they'd slide along the road and the friction of their jeans, the contact with the road, would cause their jeans that they were wearing to burn into their flesh. And he said, when the paramedics would come along and they're trying to take the jeans off, he said, you could see the lumps of flesh coming up into the jeans. And he said, the screams of the, the accident, the, the, the victim of the accident on the road, he said, will always live with them. How long do you think it took me before I went at some conscious level I'm not doing that again. Protective gear for me all the way. And I remember that in that probably two, three minute story, how he was able to change. And he wasn't setting out to do this. He wasn't aware of my attitude. But how he just changed my attitude 180 degrees through the power of that story. And, and, and here's why stories are important, because there's a narrative structure to them. They're not binary. They start out with a situation, a context, and then they bring you into, you know, something happened. It's the, what's called the complication. And they, dis they discuss the, the complication, the problem, and what, what, what takes place in, in order to address that problem, and then the outcome. And that's, in essence, is if you think about the discounting matrix, it's, it's almost like a a mirror image to that so where we if, by talking about the situation we're bringing awareness then when we talk about the problem in the story the complication as it's called we're really talking about the significance and we build the significance into that and so we're also then looking at um, the change possibilities and the options and, and basically what steps are taken and that's always in a story what happened next and what happened next is is the framework for every good story in the beginning, something happened, then this, then this, and as a result, that. And therefore, by having that narrative structure, we're mirroring the discounting process and we're taking that other individual or audience with us on that journey to they, where they come to the same conclusion as you had when you began telling the story. And that's why stories are so powerful. Now, I do have another story for you as those of you who joined the... Uh, webinar last month, I was joined virtually by Tom Castley, who had been on a webinar with me, or a podcast, I should say, uh, the week prior. And same is true this month. We were actually, I was talking to Tom on a podcast last week, and in it, he shared a story with me. And so I want to share this with you as well. And the reason for this is, when I told you the story about the Harley, I was... I, the purpose of that was to share with you how a good story can change an attitude. And if you change an attitude, you can change behavior. They can also be very good for teaching, uh, sharing lessons, and bringing somebody to a conclusion in their head without committing the sin of telling them. Because remember, you tell them, you're going to hit that discounting wall. It's just, it's not been processed. But you take them on the journey, you allow them to get there in their own time. And that's the power of it. So I'm going to share this with you. Uh, it's Tom telling this story. 
and I do story. this. It could have go. been the biggest mistake for me as a leader. Luckily, I had a super smart sales rep who, who stamped on my toe figuratively in the meeting to have me shut up. We were in with a very large multinational business selling a proposition and um, uh, this global sales, this, this global executive sat in a meeting with us and asked us to question, you know, just, so how much is this? And, um, and, and then there's a middle bit where we didn't answer the question and she came back and she said, um, you know, because eight millions, my number. And my natural reaction was, well, that's brilliant because we're probably going to be like a million and a half, <laughs> way below that number. Uh, you know, we've got sign off, we've got power, brilliant. Uh, what I hadn't realized, it's the first time it ever happened and I did the sense it, was when she said eight million, that was where her sign off started and she wanted her name on the project. So anything below eight million was going to be given to somebody else and she didn't get to own it. And luckily my rep worked that out and said, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, uh, we were going to be way north of that number anyway. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll need to, you know, work, you know, work around that solution. And, and you know, uh, and the story then goes on. We went off to one of these big consulting companies. They padded it out for us beautifully. It ended up being about ten and a half million. She was happy. <laughs> and, we, you know, we, we padded us out. We got it to about two million. <laughs> but yeah. but really interesting when you're at that executive level, uh, price is never the issue. It's about perception. And can something like this be the solution to my problem? and they'll have an expectation of what they want to spend. Okay, so I'm curious what you took away from listening to that story. If you wouldn't mind, just in the comments, uh, using your, uh, your, your phone, if you could, just tell me, what was your key takeaway in listening to that story in terms of its ability to change behavior, change attitudes, etc.? Just take a moment to do that for me now, please, if you would. Oh, we have, uh, thanks for that one, let me, uh, Pop that up there is uh, we have different perception of the value for money. Thanks. That's uh, Olfa. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Different perceptions of value for money. That's for sure one. I think the system is a little bit slow with that one coming in. So uh, appreciate that. Um, true. So, but here's the thing about it is that if you told somebody that, if you just said to somebody, look, not everybody buys at the same level. Some people have a, have a, have a floor. Some people have a ceiling. You got to really find out what they mean and, and what that number is. That would just typically go in one ear and out the other ear. But when it's told in a story and the way it's told, it's engaging and also very memorable. So then the, the chances are it's not lost. In fact, there was a study done in London School of Economics many years ago on stories and how when information is presented in uh, audible format, visual format, and then as a story in narrative format, that the narrative format has a retention rate of 70%, where audio, audible has 10, visual has 20%. So just far more memorable, far more impactful, and when it's told with the emotion, whether that's fun or in the example of the, the uh, genes being torn off the flesh, it's not, not exactly fun, but it's told with emotion. And the second one I want to talk about is Socratic questioning. Clearly, in the context of taking people through the discounting matrix and, and understanding where the level of where the discounts are taking place, you're clearly asking questions to understand their level of awareness, 
the significance, what options are available to them, etc. That's a given that the questions are part of this. But Socratic questions have a, have, have, have a different aspect to them. And the goal here is to get people to come up with the answers themselves, because we all know that if it's your answer, it's your data, that comes up against a wall. But if it's their answer, hey, it's genius and there's no resistance to it. So our goal is to get them to come up with the answers as best as we can. I'm gonna share with you a little clip from one of my favorite, favorite TV uh, programs, Only Fools and Horses, sadly, um, no longer been made. But if you haven't seen this, it's a, it's a comedy show and that's important for the clip I'm about to share with you. But the, the characters that you'll need to see in this, let me put up the characters. So, there's the main guy on the screen here now is, his name is Del Boy. And Del Boy is the, oh, he's a bit of a fly-by-night character. Very lovable, very likable, but you wouldn't trust him as far as you throw him. Here's the thing, he's just been made bankrupt. And his problem is he can no longer be the director of his own company. That's his problem. And because of that, he needs to find somebody else who he can manipulate and stay involved without breaking the law and so he, he he decides in advance who that's going to be and I want you to watch how he does it how he sets it up how he gets his younger brother to come up with the idea himself so that he owns it and look at the technique and it's the Socratic it's an example of Socratic questioning it's done as a comedy so don't judge it on a, or I should say judge it judge it as a comedy but also look at the power and what's happening with the, the Socratic questioning and how he does it. How he, it's like, think if you've ever watched Columbo, that kind of head-scratching um, behavior. So here we go. Let's uh, again. How? You owe nearly 49,000 pounds plus interest. Yeah, it's not a very good start, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me do that. Let me do that. Go on, you get some plates out. Anyway, it's going to be all right. I worked it all out. I'm a trader, ain't I, eh? I've been trading all my life since I was 12. I could sell rice to the Chinese. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to go back to trading. I'm going to work for a little local firm. Yeah? yeah. Like who? It's called Trotter's Independent Traders. <laughs> what are you talking about? The firm's been liquidised. Or liquidated, or whatever the stupid word is. No, no, no. The firm can go on trading. It's just that I've been disqualified from running it. That doesn't mean to say that I can't work for it. All we need is a new managing director. Oh, God, I actually got excited then. Derek, who is going to be stupid enough to take over Trotter's independent <laughs> traders? All <laughs> right, Rodgers, there you go. Get it down your neck. Oh, cheers, mate. Well, I don't know what we're going to do, Rodney. No, me neither. I mean, here I am, disqualified from running my own company. If I take out a loan, the tax man will nick me. If I work in cash, the customs and excise will nick me. My credit rating is so low, I can't even pay with money. <laughs> <laughs> if only, only there was some way in which we could carry on trading. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's no use you trying to cheer me up, Rodney. <laughs> No, I'm afraid the company's finished. It's gone. Trotter's Independent Traders is no more. It's kaput. It's dead. Dead as the emu. <laughs> well, that's not strictly true, is it? I mean, the company can still operate. 
It's just that uh, I'm banned from running it. I oh, know. <laughs> if only there was someone out there, Rodney, who could take over the firm, someone young and enthusiastic, someone full of enthusiasm and ideas, eh? I wonder who. Young and energetic, with ideas and enthusiasm. Hang on a minute. You thought of someone, Rodney. Oh, no, he emigrated, didn't he? <laughs> Might be one person, Dill. Whom? Me. <laughs> you? How do you mean, Rodney? Look, look, right? You've been made bankrupt, right? And are therefore not allowed to run a company, right? I haven't. <laughs> no, you got me all confused now. <laughs> Let me explain in simple terms, right? <laughs> Legally, there is nothing to stop me taking over Trotter's independent traders. Wait, man, let me see if I've got this right. <laughs> what you're saying is that you could run the firm. By George, I think he's got it. Well, that's a brilliant idea, Rodney. Argent, competent, as they say in games. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, tell you what we do. We go down and see our lawyer tomorrow, go straight round company's house, and make you the new managing director, Rodney Tr Hey, Raquel, guess what? Rodney has only come up with a brilliant idea to save the family. He's going to be the new managing director of Trotter's Independent Traders. I'm going to be in charge of sales, purchasing and finance, that's all. Congratulations, Rodney. I'm surprised you didn't think of that, Dale. Yeah, no, it's just what I was thinking. Okay, so that was an example of Socratic questioning, clearly in a comedic context, but if you can see the process that was used, which is rather than give the answer, it was pose the problem, and then using Socratic questioning, getting people to come up with the answer. And that's a great way also for people to, uh, where you want them to discover and have awareness and significance. Again, if you point it out, there's a risk they'll go into denial and you, everybody's frustrated. But when, you, when as, as Rodney said at the beginning of that, he said, uh, if only there was, he posed the question to his brother, he said, if only there was somebody younger and more energetic um, and enthusiastic. Hmm, only, and, and then, so when Rodney came up with the answer, he goes, how do you mean? And then Rodney explains, and, and that's not enough. He wants him to, to dig deeper and explain it further, put more meat on the bone. He goes, uh, he says, no, he says, I'm, I'm a little confused. And that's the Socratic questioning is taking a position, a profession of, of ignorance, that's the, the actual definition, in order to get clarity or ex on a topic or expo expose a misconception. But in, in other words, for other people to, to get it and develop the answer themselves, and it's very, very, very powerful. So that was uh, the second one I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, the third one was uh, challenge the, the, the problem in itself, challenge the other. And again, I have another uh, clip that I want to share with you on that. Uh, again, it's with Tom. And in this clip, he's talking about how he uses, and it's another form of questioning, a form of reversing questioning. 
to 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 help the your your coachee, I guess, um, to come up with the answers themselves, and I'll I'll share that with you here. Oh yeah, it's, this is based on the idea that you can solve problems using the same level of thinking that created them. So the goal of this is to get them to think at a deeper level because a lot of people have. Uh, what's this market? I totally agree. The storytelling is ninja level. Thanks uh, when it comes to changing hearts and minds. Good stuff. And uh, on this one, I hope you enjoy and, this uh, one and as well. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, well, well, I would do this. And my next question is actually, and so what do you think I'm thinking? I don't even ask a question. <laughs> so what do you think I'm thinking? Oh, uh, well, you're you're thinking. You know, have I have I have I already given them the list price? Huh? Okay. Well, I wasn't thinking that, but okay, let's let's go through now. What what do you think I'm really thinking? Well, you're thinking. Well, you know, had they got the budget? Oh, that's a, no, I wasn't thinking that either. There's, all right. Well, what were you thinking? And you could see them just answering their own questions as they go through it. And and all I'm doing is helping them to make sure that they paint the full picture before they present it to the client, and they've thought about it. And what I've what I get really excited about as a leader is this variety of thought that they have that that kind of you know uh, cognitive variability actually teaches me a ton uh, and i learn because it you know their perspective is so different to me and then that allows me not to have the answers to somebody else just to have better questions so there you go. Uh, what you saw in that clip was the idea, rather than giving the answers, is the, you know, it's the, what do you think I'm thinking, which forces the problem back on your, your, your coachee and forces them to dig deeper. If you think about it, very often what happens is when solving problems, we'll discount our own ability that we actually have the answers. And by using that technique that Tom has given an example of, what do you think I'm thinking, is it forces the your 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 partner to actually dig deep into their own resources and their own experiences and their own knowledge and understanding to to come up with the answers uh, to to bypass or to move on from that initial discounting that takes place so it's another really nice technique to to apply so that's the uh, third one the other one was on intention and it's another nice thing, it's an idea I think that's very powerful in, the, in, in getting people to come on board the change train and, and, and move with you. And it's the idea here actually comes from a book called Turn the Ship Around. It's a, that's a, just a clip or a, a clipping I should say on the book itself by uh, David Marquette. And the idea behind this is that Instead of having to seek permission, you allow people to proceed based on intention. In other words, I intend to take this course of action, boss. And it's by exception then that you might step in and say, uh, no, you can't. Or more importantly, what you might want to do is not say, why do you want to do that? But to say, okay, what, what, what did you experience or what were you thinking that brought you to that conclusion, for example. So instead of questioning their conclusion, because if you say to somebody, why did you come up with that? They will defend why they came up with that. But if you can access their thinking and the thought process that led to that, again, the narrative process, you can understand it a lot better, but also if, need, if you need to uh, challenge it in any way, 
you, you, you're able to challenge the thinking that brought them there rather than the conclusion in itself, which is a lot more powerful. And so the idea of it is, take, because when people have to get permission from you, it actually robs them of agency. And you're, you're actually then almost conditioning them to discount that they don't have the, th that fourth level of discounting is what they have. They don't have the personal ability, the support, the, um, the resources to go and solve the problem and take action. And so by shifting the focus then to saying, okay, you have the, the power, you have the agency to do this. Just tell me what you intend to do. And 99 out of times out of 100, they'll surprise you because it'll be good, maybe better than you would have come up with. I think that's important as well. So I wanted to put that in there as part of the, if you like, the, uh, the basket of, of resources that are available to us. And the final one I had on this in terms of methods was repetition. This is quite a powerful, very simple one as well. Let's say, uh, for example, in a scenario that uh, reps go on a call and they never get to quantify the cost of the problem. Let's say they're just getting on and getting surface level pain with a prospect and never really getting deep down into how it impacts the organization, how it impacts the individual and, and quantifying the cost of that problem in, in euros and cent. And, and, and even though you've done your best to outline why that's important, it's not happening. Well, if you can focus in on that one, this, I call it focus coaching, that one particular problem and it, which is that they're not quantifying with their prospect the cost of the problem that the prospect is facing, is every time they get off the call, and there's a form of question here, it's called a presumptive question, is you say to the rep, when you ask the prospect how much it was costing the business, what did he tell you or what did she tell you? And the first few times they won't have an answer because they didn't ask. But if you keep repeating that every single time, you focus on that, and when at some level on that call, it might be the third or fourth or fifth time, they'll hear your voice at the back of their head, quantify the problem. And then they'll be so proud when they come to you and you say, well, when you ask them how much they quantify the problem, you go 12 million <laughs> annualized. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. But you, you have to be the, the agent of change. You have to just focus on one thing, not many things. And they may, I remember this a few years ago when I, I had failed my driving license twice. I hadn't taken any lessons, that's my excuse. Uh, well, I did, I took two lessons the second time. Um, that was a long time ago. But when I lived in England, went out, said, go to do this properly, take lessons. And Sue was her name, I'll always remember, fantastic driving instructor. Because I had all of these bad habits. And if she tried to focus on solving all of them at the same time, nothing, nothing would have changed. My behavior wouldn't have gotten better. So she took one at a time. And how she solved it would be, would be going along and she said, without looking in your mirror, what color is the car behind us? Or without looking at your speedometer, what speed are you going at? And I'd go mm, the first time. And then, then I'd be very proud because I'd know I'd be, I'm going at 40 miles an hour. And then she'd say, and uh, what speed limit are we in, Paul? Uh, uh, so <laughs> she was bringing an, an awareness to me of the problem we were having. But what she would do is she would focus on the one problem first, which might be, say, going too fast uh, in a 30 mile an hour zone or not, not looking in my mirrors. Y you know, you've, most people have an idea of all the things that you got to kind of 
do initially it's very conscious and then subconscious and that happens through repetition and that she was good at and it's a really really great technique to get people to change their behavior you you, you just pick on one thing and not you don't pick on them you pick on the thing and you repeat and repeat and repeat okay we're almost up on time we got five minutes left i want to very quickly go through some of the pitfalls that are involved in this so let's talk about the first one first one is trust um if if you don't have that with a rep and there could be many many different reasons you may have broken down you may be new on the job you may have inherited a team lots of different reasons but if you don't have that you've got to start there you got to work on that and people you can't tell people trust me they, they got to got to see it and so that may be a barrier to it and so i'm asking you to look inside yourself at this stage um and see that if there's an if there's an individual in your team and they're not behaving in the way that you want them to and despite all your efforts you got to also look at yourself and go and go well what's my relationship with like them with them do they do they believe in their heart and soul that i have their best interests at heart and that the answer to that isn't an emphatic yes start there next one fear of judgment um I, I know we talk a lot about fear of failure in sales, but I actually think fear of judgment is probably a more powerful one in that we, we, we're often happy to fail if nobody else notices us or sees it. It's the fact that it's done publicly and other people get to see it and the shame and the, the, that comes with that and, and the fear that if we mess up, that people will judge us. So obviously the antidote to that is we got to focus on creating an environment that is non-judgmental and that we celebrate failure that we're, or, or we celebrate effort that if people do it and their intentions are right and their intentions are pure that that's what gets celebrated and there is no judgment uh, if it doesn't work out that the only judgment is a positive one based on on, on heartfelt intention uh, and effort uh, I did put in fear of failure. I do think that can be an issue. In other words, if I fear that if I mess up, for example, that promotion will be on the line or that job will be on the line or I could lose my job, if that's a fear, it's, that, that's wor that's, uh, it, it's different, I should say, not worse. It's different to judgment. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more tangible in, in that respect. And that can, so when you find, when you're getting people and you want them to change behavior and you're talking through the process or what needs to happen, and they're asking you questions relating to the process, you know, what would happen and what if, and all of the, the, the kind of questions which on one level looks like they're interested, but when you look past it, what they're really doing is they're trying to assess the level of risk uh, in terms of if I do this and it doesn't work out, will I be judged? If I do this and I fail, will I be negatively impacted? And we all know some people in your organization can be very risk adverse and therefore their their, their initial reaction to that um, will be about failure and the judgment thing is true as well i think um there was a psychologist telling me this recently i think the figure was in between 60 70 percent of the population are get their sense of self and validation externally how other people see them is how they see themselves and that few of us are fortunate enough not to give a damn about what other people think um and, and judgment isn't the same to those type of individuals. So you've got to look at the individual as, is, is where's the shame, where's the fear, where's the concern, and, uh, and, and work to assuage that. 
and it may be breaking it down into bite-sized steps, maybe saying, look, I understand, em huge go gobs of empathy are required at this stage as well to understand because they may not feel the way you feel about it. But we've got to start with where they are, not where we are. Uh, lack of self-awareness and its partner in crime, which is the absence of ambition and drive. So those two together tell us whether people are have a natural drive, attraction to change as a concept. And, and these can be assessed. There's a lot of tools out there that will, when, you, when you assess people will tell you that they're, what their level of self-awareness is. Because if I, if, if I don't see, again, if, if I'm not aware of it, then it's very hard for me to do anything about it. And if I don't see it and you tell me about it, I'll, I'll just deny it because I, I don't see it. And not everybody has a strong sense of self-awareness. And then with that, if I don't have that fire under my ass, that, that need, that drive to be better, do better, then it's too easy to default to the status quo because there's no risk. At least, it's not true. Of course there's risk in the status quo. There's no bigger risk. But the perception is it's a safe place. And you know that old expression that, Ships are safe in a harbour, but that, that's not what ships are for. The same applies to ourselves and career, etc. But it, what we're asking when we're asking people to risk is to, to leave something of which they're certain of and move towards something that's less certain, but they hope is better. Well, if they don't believe it's better and they don't really, really desire that, they're probably going to stay in the harbour. And that can be a, a, a barrier, if you like, to it as well. So that's... That's where I, what I want to do. In terms of wrap-up, we are 30 seconds left. What I'd like you to do, and if you could put this in the chat for me, please, I'd appreciate it, is as a result of what we covered, just one thing you're going to start doing, or maybe it's one thing that you're going to stop doing that you're currently doing, you think, oh, shouldn't do that, or just one thing that you found most valuable. Put that in the chat for me, please, and in 30 seconds, we'll, we'll be ready to, uh, to close up. Okay, most valuable, the power of presumptive questioning. All right, nice one, Sive. Uh, keep a record of great stories I've heard. That's a, absolutely true, Mark. I did that. What I started doing was just I kept a blog because if I'd hear a story, I needed to be able to articulate it in my own words, my own voice. And just remembering the story, when you try to articulate it, it's easy to stumble over it. But when you put it into a blog or write it out, it forces you to kind of cut out what's not necessary and focus in on certain areas and, and, and reduce it down to its core essence. So great, great one. I like that one. Um, good stuff. All right, folks, I think that's it. We are going to wrap. We have one more stop to uh, Socratic questionings. Thanks, Ofra. Uh, uh, stop doing is focusing on the problem. Yeah, great one. Good stuff. And that book again, by the way, if you're interested in this, really is a fascinating book. TA Today, A New Introduction to Transactional Analysis. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Uh, all right, that's it, folks. Thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you on the next one. Take care for now.